Hello, and welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast for Edgewood Church in Danville, Illinois. This week at Edgewood. Heavenly Father, God, I do thank you again for this day, and I just thank you, Lord, for your word. I just pray now that you would bless this time that we have together. God, I pray that you'd guide and direct my words as we look at this passage from Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Lord, I just ask that your truth would stand uh, supreme over all that's said and thought today. In your name I pray. Amen. All right, so um, before we get into this passage, there's, I think that there's, as I was preparing for, I thought, you know, there's, there's something that it may need to be said or discussed before we dig too much into what Paul's going to say. Because I think what Paul says, for some, is going to make sense right off the bat. It's a very easy application. But for others, I think there may be some uh, mental blocks to what Paul is talking about. Maybe not seeming so at first, but if you really think about the implications, I think there could be some mental blocks to this. And so, as I was thinking about our church... And I was thinking about the world that we live in. Uh, this question came to mind. Some of you already saw it. Uh, this, this is kind of... Now, I hardly ever just talk about just this topic. Okay? But I think it's an important one to address. Does everyone go to heaven? Uh, there are some who would say yes. There are some who believe that. There are some who think, hey... Every, ultimately, everybody, eventually, everybody does. Even those within the realm of Christianity would say that. But I think we need to ask this question based on what does the Scripture say. Now, there's so many passages I could go to, but I'm just going to go to a few. I'm going to start with one from Jesus. And I'm going to start with this, this and I'm going to call it the witness of Jesus. So, Jesus, there's so many passages I could point to. Jesus talks about this more than almost anybody, any other biblical character. I think it's really important. Listen to what he says. This actually comes from the parable of the sheep and the goats. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I just want to read a, a piece of it. Uh, Matthew chapter 25 says this. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, he's talking about at the end times, okay, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. So start to picture that. So Jesus, right, Son of Man, He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, Everybody. And he will separate. See, automatically. I mean, this is Jesus. I know that some would hear these words of Jesus and they would go, there, there's, there could be, I know for most of you there's probably not. But I think for some there could be a bit of a cringe. Like Jesus would do that. He would separate people. Can you see why I would feel like there may be some that would... I know that most of you are probably like, we, we get, we've heard this, Matt, we get it. But, but let yourself really enter into it. These are real people. This is a real future event that's going to happen. And, and what Paul's going to teach is not going to be nearly as impactful unless you let yourself enter into this real future event. And Jesus says, the Son of Man, and he's going to do something. He's going to separate people, one from the other. And then he gives a mental picture, the same way a shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. If Bruce was in here, he could probably tell us what that's all like, right? The sheep, the goats, splitting them up, okay? Verse 34 says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, 
Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there's this kingdom. He says, come. So those on the right, he says, come. Now he goes on after this to describe these, what we would call the sheep, right? He goes on to describe them. But I'm going to skip ahead a few verses because what I'm focused on right now is, what about everybody else? Verse 41 says this, Then he will say to those on his left, Remember, this is the king, the son of man, Jesus, the same Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. This Jesus will at one point fill this role from a throne. Then he will say to those on his left, let, let these words ring in your ears, because this, this is, I mean, if anybody knows what the future is, is it not Jesus? And so Jesus himself says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away, verse 46, into eternal punishment, the righteous into eternal life. So automatically we can answer this question from the words of Jesus, glimpsing a future event, not getting all of the details, but if we answer that question, does everybody go to heaven according to this? What would you have to say? No. Now there's two approaches that pastors can take to this. One of them can be very harsh. I've sat in front of pastors who, who talked about passages like this with almost a bit of glee. Not from me. This is a sobering reality. It's the kind of reality that I want to look away from and not think about. Would you not agree? Jesus, and I keep saying it this way, but Jesus, loving, kind Jesus, who, who reached out to the, the poorest of this world, it's him that's saying these things. And like I said, he talks about this more than any other biblical character. All of Scripture laid out, he talks about this more than anybody else. He describes this place, this, like in this one, eternal, not just punishment, but what? Eternal punishment. He uses other things, other ways to describe it. He calls it a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He talks about it as a place where the worm doesn't die, right? Meaning whatever death you're experiencing there is not a death that ultimately leads to corruption ended, like where it's finally over. It's eternal. Let me give you another witness to this from Scripture. This one comes near the end of the Bible from John, one of Jesus' disciples. John is the one who wrote the book of Revelation, talking about the end times. And near the end of that book, uh, the end of Revelation, near the end of that book, you see him write these words. <clears throat> then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Now, do you think that John is describing the same thing Jesus was talking about, just in a different way? I think so. Once again, there's a throne. This one, he goes into more detail. That everything just flees from before his presence. It's so magnificent. 
John says, and I saw the, the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and then another book was opened. And I imagine John describing these things that are almost too difficult to put into words, seeing this, getting a glimpse of this future event. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead, all of them remembered the great and the small. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Everybody. Death and, death and Hades, hell, gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into... The lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Once again, John, this John that wrote this, I love this John. He's so full. I mean, you, you see him when he's walking the earth with Jesus. He never calls himself John in the book where he writes about Jesus. He never calls himself John. He says, I'm just the disciple who Jesus loved. I, I love that. We actually studied the gospel of John not that long ago. But this John, it, it, once again, not the kind of person that would be saying these things with a sense of enjoyment. But can you imagine from his point of view seeing this? The reality, the dead, a separation once again spoken of, something key there, there's this book of life. Now they were judged from what was in the books, it said, but then the key deciding moment, this book of life. You start to see these things played out. Now, I'm obviously going somewhere. I know that when you have a pastor preaching, you always know that he's going somewhere, right? Where's he going? Remember, I'm laying out some important, I think, groundwork for your brains to, to marinate in this sobering reality. You've got to let this soak in. There were two things in that last passage that seemed to be important. One, it talks about the works that they'd done. So there's something about that, but clearly there's this other part whether or not their name was in the book. So I want to go back to John, the gospel, to a passage you've all heard. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but what? Have eternal life. I, who's heard this one before? Yeah. This verse goes on. The very next two verses say this. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in, that the, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because He has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we start to get, and without, I, I could spend the whole day talking about this part of this. And I think most of you at least have some grasp on this. So if I go quickly and I lose you along the way, please feel free to talk to me. 
But if I understand the scriptures, it comes right down to these ideas. John 3.16 I love because I think it captures what it's all about. It all comes back to Jesus, our Savior. He came to this earth. He died on the cross. He lived a perfect life while here. Earned righteousness and then freely offers it to any who call on His name, who believe in Him, who seek to follow Him. All of our hope, all of our faith, all of our trust is in Him. When I stand before God on that judgment day, my hope that my name is in that book of life will not be based on whether or not I've lived up to it. And I hope that your hope is not based on how good you've done this life. Because I don't know if you're like me, but if you're like me, you'd say, I hope it's not depending on how well I've done this life. And so all of us, as we come together, those of you that are genuinely Christians before God, you've come and you've said, I... I can never live this life righteously. I'm putting everything, as I like to say, all my eggs in one basket. And that basket's Jesus. I'm putting everything in Him. I'm trusting in Him. I'm trusting that when I stand before God on that last day, that that is the key deciding element. Him and not me. These works, how we live, are obviously important. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. But it goes on to say after that, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so people who have come, they've said, I trust Christ. They begin to do what? They begin to emulate Christ in this world. They're followers of Him, disciples of Him. Let me give you one more example from scriptures, going back. This one is about 600 years before Jesus. And it's from a man named Daniel. Uh, Daniel, who you probably know because he was thrown into a den of what? Lions. Good job, Sunday school class. Near the end of his book, he writes this. And I, I hope that you marvel at the similarities between what Daniel writes and what we've already heard from Jesus and from John. 600 years later, 600 years before that, Daniel says this, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been uh, since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And then he says this. You see the book? You hear that? It's amazing. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So similar, isn't it? But now this next verse lays something out that I, where I want to focus on, because when these realities start to sink in, and I hope, like I said, you're, is your brain marinating in this? And I hope that you're not like those pastors I've seen before that, that seem to talk about hell with a bit of glee, but with a sobering reality. Like, this is a truth so terrible, I can hardly look at it for more than a couple seconds at a time. Daniel ventures into something here in verse 3. He says, And those who are wise... Can I talk about those... On to everlasting life, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, 
And, so the wise ones, and he uses another way to describe these wise ones, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Now, so now your brains are marinating in this sobering reality, and anybody that has any care at all about human beings anywhere, if you believe these things to be true, there's a reality that starts to sneak up in your marinated brain. Okay? You start thinking about out there. And there's, there's, a, there's a statement in here, right there, you see it, who turn. See, that, that goes against how our world operates. Okay? In our culture, our, today, our society today. This goes against that. Well, I mean, we're okay. Hey, you can believe how you want to believe, and I can believe how I want to believe, and you can believe how you want to believe, and you're okay with that. And, and to, but to venture into, because if this is true, and it's about Jesus, and it's about faith in Him, then there's some people that I know that don't believe that. And if this is true, I know now they're eventual destination and it's horrible now if you know someone's eventual destination and it turns out horribly what do you do as a loving human being what ought you to do it's a real question warn them tell them pray God save them I mean you, you see this destination they're headed towards Goodness, this is horrible. I think this is why Daniel says they're, 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 they're shy. The wise and those who turn many to righteousness, these are the same people. The wise, the ones that are headed, there's something else that they're doing. They're turning. This is where it rubs our culture the wrong way. Because at some point in turning somebody, you have to say, you're wrong. That's, that's wrong. You're believing something wrong. And I want to persuade you, not coerce, not force, it's never in Scripture, we're not ought to coerce people. It wouldn't work anyway, would it? Could you put a gun to their head and say, believe in Jesus or else? I mean, this, 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 is that going to work? Are they going to really believe it? No. But, th but there's a sense of persuasion. You're going to see Paul talk about this and just a sense of persuasion that you see over and over again. There's so many passages we talk about. Now the Bible gives us what we call the Great Commission. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 28 just before he ascends to heaven. A lot of people know this. Uh, go therefore. Jesus says, go. There, go. And you've seen what happens. I died. I came back. I'm resurrected. I'm in this resurrected body. It, it, people ought to come to this one who's done this. And so he looks at his disciples and he says to his disciples, he says, Now go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Everybody. Every, think of that word as nations. Every culture. Every society. Go. Make 
disciples, followers of Jesus of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. But i got to be honest, even if this was not in here, this wouldn't have to be in there for us to know we ought to go. So now, as you're marinating, this is going to help if we do something else. I want you to think for a moment of people, actual people, not faceless people, but actual people that you may know. People who don't believe. Some you may think of, somebody might pop in your head, they don't even believe in God. Some may pop in your head that are of a different religion. They don't believe in Jesus as the Savior. Some who claim, there's some who maybe, they, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but they're clearly not followers of Jesus. Just words. Allow yourself to think on them for a moment and to ponder if you dare, if you dare to go down this path. Ponder for a moment their fate. Now, Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Paul says this, and he's been talking about giving up his freedoms, his rights. And he shifts gears, but I think just slightly, and says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. And then here you see it that I might win more of them. For though I am free of all, I've made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. Paul, is, he, he's come to believe in Christ, and there's this, there's this freedom. And some of you know this very well. There's this freedom in Christ, that you're free of trying to earn your way to heaven, first of all. You start to get free the longer you're in Christ. You start to get free of that fear of man issue. Like, what do people think about me? There's all these, these things. There's this freedom in Christ. But Paul said, I, like he, yes, you're free. He says, though I'm free of all, I have made myself a servant. And that word servant is an interesting word. It's the word doulos. And it could, it's, it could be translated slave, like a bond slave, a slave by choice. Though I am free, I've indebted myself to everybody else. And then he gives this reason why. Because I want to win more. I want to win more. I want more. I'm not satisfied with just the ones that have already come to believe. There's more. There's others. Think if Paul was here, he'd look out at a city like Danville and say, this city's full of people. I want to win more. Paul Barnett, speaking about this, says this, this freedom, speaking of Paul's freedom in Christ, he says, is not a selfish freedom such as was the mark of autonomous men of Greece and Rome. Don't worry about that little middle phrase. Just think about this. It's not a selfish freedom. It's not just, man, I'm free. Rather, Paul was free to be a slave of others. This freedom he saw not, wasn't just about his own personal benefit. He said, I'm, I'm free of these, these things, but this freedom said, I'm, now, I'm free to do what? To go enjoy my life? Or suddenly, I'm free to be 
slave, the servant, all others. You have this freedom. I think many of you do. But when you are free, what are you free to do? Paul says it this way in Galatians. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Right? That selfishness to make me feel good. But through love, do what? Serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He, he steers back to the words of Jesus. Loving others outward look. Now Paul's going to give some examples, okay? So I hope this is starting to unfold. So I've laid some groundwork, some, some thoughts of fates. We start to see Paul, how Paul is, is operating. Listen to some of his examples and see if you can't start to put yourself in his shoes. This first one will be weird for us. Paul says, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. So his, his seeking of servitude to all others he submits himself, he says, to the Jews, I became... Now that seems odd, because was Paul actually a Jew? He was. This seems odd to him. Wait, wait, I thought he was a Jew. His primary, his primary identity was no longer his Jewishness, but who he was in Christ. And so he's able to say to the Jews, I became as a Jew. And so he adopts back some of his Jewishness for evangelistic purposes. We see stories in Acts where Paul kept some of their feasts still. There were times where he, uh, on his way to Jerusalem, he fulfilled a vow that he had taken, a Jewish vow. And in fact, he goes out to, he pays for, he, he, you know, physically, he actually goes and he pays for the fulfillment of this vow for a few others that had also taken this vow. He, he's adopting back some of his Jewishness for evangelistic purposes. To those... Uh, under the law, he says this, almost the same thing. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. He adds in there, though, not being under the law myself in the sense of needing to earn my salvation. I'm not, I'm not fully back into that, but I, I become like that. I identify with them. Why? He says it again, that I might win those under the law. He thinks of his Jewish brothers, sisters, this nation, this people. He thinks of all those others that have indebted themselves to this. I used to have this discussion with a friend of mine. He asked me, uh, this was several years ago, he said, he said, Matt, if you were invited to preach at a Catholic church or a Lutheran church, a church that, or, or a church that clearly was mm, somewhere else theologically, would you do it? It's because of passages like this that I say, yes. In fact, I if I had to, if they said, Matt, we're going to let you come preach at this Catholic church, um, here's an opportunity. If I had to, I'd put on, have you seen some of, those, some of the Catholic priests that wear the robes? I, I'd do that if I had, if, I had if, if the opportunity was there for me to get in there and preach the gospel, and they said, oh, you just have to wear the robe. You know, what's amazing about this is that some in this room would not be okay with these sorts of things because they would see something else more important. Uh, they, they would see something else as going, you know what, yeah, I'd do that, but you know what, I, I'd be showing up in my jeans and t-shirt just to make a point. When we read this, is that what Paul would have done? Huh. I could maybe say it this way, and I don't think I'm stretching it. 
Say to the Catholics, I, be, I can become like a Catholic so that I might win the Catholics. To the, to the Lutherans, I, I, I'd be as a Lutheran so I could win the Lutherans. In some way, Paul saw his primary identity as this. And I want to encourage some of you already as this starts to unfold. Maybe you start to glimpse some applications here. The, the main thing for Paul was not those freedoms he had gained in Christ. It was to preach the gospel. Listen to his second example. This is where some of you might have been okay with that first one, but let's flip it around. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Now he adds in there, not being outside the law of God. So in case you think, so that mean I can just go out and start being sinful just so I can identify with sinful people? Is that what he's saying? No. There's still an identity, a connection. To, to them, I identified myself with, with those outside the law. Not myself, being outside the law. But I'm still actually under the law of Christ. But why again? That I might win those outside the law. So in the spectrum of people, just think about Danville for a second. The spectrum of people, to, we have some really religious people in Danville, really good people, upstanding, devout citizens that believe in God and country. Do we have any people like that in Danville? Do we have people on the very other end of the spectrum? I wouldn't be surprised if some of you would, would lean more over in this direction. Paul came from the Jewish side, but he was able to not just identify with them, but also to do what? The very other end of the spectrum. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law because I want to win them too. Charles Erdman says, to the Gentiles who were without law, he adapted himself. Not requiring them to adopt Jewish ceremonies. In fact, he went as far as quoting from their literature and even basing an argument on an inscription of one of their, from one of their altars. That actually comes from the, uh, when Paul was in Athens. There was an altar to the unknown God. Paul quotes it. Like he's aware of the culture he was in. And there's interesting examples where he, he would quote from some of their poetry, not just from scriptures, but he, he, he knew the people he was talking to and able to quote from some of the things that they knew and they understood and the, the ways that they would think. It's even interesting when you look at how Paul preached to different cities. There's even different ways he approaches the subject. We, we learned a lot of that as we went through the book of Acts. Could you guys do the same thing? I think there's an implied here some awareness of the culture. So maybe we ought to expand that weightiness of what the future fates are, not just the people that we know. A minute ago I said, think of someone you know. How about the people that you don't know? When you're driving through Danville, driving along, look, look at the car next to you. I don't need to look too long. You're driving. Okay? We don't want you to wreck. But glance over. Look at that face. Look at this bus stop. People stand at the bus stop. When you're in Walmart. Could I say, now some of you will enjoy this reference, I think. Could I say, to the, to the people of Walmart, I became as the people of Walmart, that I might win some. 
Does that mean that I would go to Walmart in my pajama pants? <laughs> I wouldn't be opposed to it. I definitely wouldn't want to do something to, to, to make anyone think I'm better than you. Right? I'm better than you. In fact, I'm going to start to gear off into some possible applications. In fact, I would encourage some of you to start thinking about what kinds of things you could be doing, maybe even without realizing it, that might be speaking to your culture, I'm not one of you. Maybe you've never even thought about it before. Maybe you've thought, well, yeah, but, but I... And I don't think anybody's ever said this out loud. Maybe some of you jokingly, but I think some of you might have this in the back of your head. But I gotta be me. Do you think Paul was voicing that as he reached out to both sides of his culture? He said, to these people, I became to them as one of them. To these people, I became to them as if I was one of them. In fact, that means, I'm, I, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking... He must have known in some way that the people that were in this group over here, they looked at Paul and they thought, he's one of us, he gets us. But then he was with the, this people here. Well, Paul, Paul understands us. The amazing thing about it is how Paul was able to do this across the board. How many of us are able to, to delve into one group but not the other? But where the sin comes in, I think, is this. When we're able to delve into one group, we have trouble with the other, is when we go, I don't want to identify with them. That's the big thing we've got to address right now. If you even have a them in your head, us, them, I'd say you're headed the wrong way right off the bat. Paul used the word them, but he says, I just want to win them. I want to win them. He summarizes verse 22. Or not summarize, he goes just a step further. The summary comes up. Verse 22, to the weak, just in case there was any other categories left. I think it's interesting he didn't say, to the strong and became like one of the strong. He didn't say that one. I don't think any of us have a problem identifying the, the powerful people. I don't have a problem. I'd love to identify with them. I wish they would let me in their group, their club. Paul, to, to the weak. I think partially because all of us know we fall into this category. When all the guards are let down, most of us know that's us. I'm weak. And Paul said, to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. And then he summarizes it. I, become, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I ask, can you do this? Do you want to do this? Paul talks about something similar in Romans 12. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I think as well that Paul often looked to the example of Christ 
In Philippians chapter 2, he says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was God in, in that form. It was Christ who said, Let there be light. Through him all things were made. There was not a thing that was made that wasn't made. All the made stuff, Jesus made. He did that. Paul says, have, have this kind of mind. A mind that can say, I'm up here. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. I mean, it just keeps going. I mean, it's a big enough deal that God said, I'm going to just walk around in a human body that has to go to the bathroom. Right? But he didn't just humble himself in that way. He became not just, I mean, he could have come down and said, I'm the king of the world. And made us all serve him. He does it. What's he do? He comes, he becomes a servant of all. And so Paul says, have that kind of mind. Because if he can go that far, what he's asking us to do is not nearly as far. Have this mind. And Christ became obedient, humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. I want to introduce a idea to you here. Modus operandi. Can you say that? Modus operandi. You have to say it that tone, too. You can't just say modus operandi. You've got to say modus operandi. The definition of modus operandi is a particular way or method of doing something, right? Especially one that is characteristic or well-established. Well, you know, modus operandi is basically, how do, you, how do you do stuff? And I think what we're seeing here is Paul's manner, his modus operandi of evangelism. When he thinks out, this is the groundwork, this is the foundation of how he evangelizes. He comes into a situation, he says, who's here? I want to be able to identify with every single one of them. I want them to be able to identify with me. That's his modus operandi. This is what I'm suggesting you take from Sunday into Monday. There's some walls that need to be torn down. There may be some people in this city that you go, I'm better than they are. You'd never say it out loud, but you know you think it. Help pray to God that he destroys that wall. And you start seeking to find ways. See, I could go down specifics. How do you, well, how do you actually do this? And I hope on Wednesday night we're going to talk about a little bit of the specifics, like more examples. How, do, how can we do this? How can, how can we begin to identify? I think there's a lot of ways to do that. Ben Witherington III though hits at the heart. He says, He sees himself as free of obligations from all persons, yet he has made himself a slave to all in order to win over more of them. He accommodates, I think this is where we get to some ideas of where, what, what does this look like? He accommodates his style of living, not his theological or ethical principles. He accommodates his style of living to whomever he is with, so it's better to win that person to Christ. He is in short, this is a hard word to say, Flexible in his general lifestyle, food, clothing, and the like. He's flexible. He's flexible. And why? It's interesting, each of the groups in verses 19 through 22 is an outsider by the other side. 
right? Each of the examples that Paul gave could be considered an outsider by the other side. So he stands, I think, he, he aligns himself with the outsiders for the sake of the gospel. In fact, he says that in verse 23. I do it all. Why? For the sake of the gospel that I may share with them its blessings. Martin Luther, you guys heard of Martin Luther, reformer, lived in the 1500s. It is said that on his deathbed, and he had talked about this before, but on his deathbed he scribbled these words. Um, German, I'm thinking the top line there in English. I think that if you've known me long enough, you've known I've alluded to this statement many times. Martin Luther said, we're all beggars. This is true. We're all beggars. He said other times, we are all mere beggars showing other beggars where to find bread. Have you heard me say that one here at church before? See, Paul, as he experienced the joys of being in Christ, didn't say, oh, I'm just going to enjoy this. He began to look out and say, I want everybody else. There, there's no limit. It's not like there's only this one basket and if I start sharing, I get less. God's love is infinite. Always abounding. And so I want to become all things, all people. And so as he said in that last verse, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may what? Share. I just want everybody else to know what this is. Not just for that future fate for right now, but also not leaving behind that, that ultimate future fate. I want everybody to share in these blessings. On Monday morning, as you step out into your world, who in here on Monday is going to go to work at some point? Okay? Who in here on Monday is on vacation? Who in here on Monday is on permanent vacation because you're retired? <laughs> but you're going to work Monday. Oh, we are going to work Monday. Whatever your case, right? I mean, I could try to hit down every, you know, school hasn't started yet, but that's what we're going to have to say eventually. Who's going to school? And we're all going to go, oh, right? Whatever, wherever you're headed, most likely you're going to encounter human beings. Some of them will be like you. Some of them will not. But if you adopt Paul's modus operandi, one of your goals that's operating in the back of your head is going to be, I don't want anybody that I encountered to, to, to look at me as a them. How can I begin to relate? This will be a challenge for many of you. Because there's some people out there that are a lot different than you are. But it's time to stop focusing on you and start thinking, this is a human being that has an eternal fate. How can I identify? How can I do that? What can I, what can I do? You have to start paying attention, aren't you? When you go into your work situation, suddenly you're not just thinking about getting your job done. What are you thinking? You're thinking about this other person. You're thinking, what do they like? What do they not like? What kind of music do they like? Do they watch TV? Do they have a family? Have they experienced loss? Are they going through a difficult time? 
I wouldn't be surprised if there's some of you in this room that have, there, there's some that you've ne it's never even crossed your mind to think about the people that you work with or around your neighbors. I wouldn't be surprised at all. I know there's been times in my life where I haven't. I've been so focused on getting my own stuff done. I haven't stopped and thought about. But this is where we need to go. This is, where, this is how this works. What do they enjoy? What do they not enjoy? When I'm at school and I'm trying to understand kids, sometimes I just have to Google what they just said because I don't even know what they're talking about. What's that word mean? <clears throat> oh, my goodness. <laughs> don't say that again. I gotta pay attention. Facial expressions, huge. Go to work, somebody comes in. If you haven't been identifying with them all along, you may not even notice that today they come in and they're just down. Maybe they come in and they're happy. What are you happy about? What's going on? You want to get to that place like Paul can say, I've become all things to all people so that by all means, I might win some. He never lays down his principles in Christ. He never turns to sinful ways. But as much as he can possibly relate. And the reason why we can do this is because of what Martin Luther said. At the end of the day, we're all beggars. There's not really any one of us that's better than anybody else. In this room, in this church, in this city. In this world, we're all just beggars. And your job, because you've found bread, not of your own doing, God has shown it to you. Your job is to say, there's bread over here. And as you begin to enter into people's lives, you'll start to see those opportunities pop up. Maybe it's that tragedy and you'll say, you know, Jesus. Jesus. Begin to point the way. Now I'm going to have our guys come up here in just a moment. And we're going to shift over to communion. But I want to encourage you as you're thinking about those thoughts, right? Where do we start? Fate. <laughs> Where people end up. We talked about Paul's methodology. Because he wants to win. He wants to turn. He wants to save. He even used that word save. I want to save some. Maybe today, as you're thinking about this, you can think about Christ. Paul said, look at his example. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider that something he had to show off, but became like us, a servant. Then became obedient to the point of death on the cross. That's the degree. And so as we take this up today, we can be thinking, Lord... The example you laid for me, I have not been following that example. Some of you have to say it. I've not been following that example. Maybe like me, you'll have to say, I haven't been doing it as much as I could. I've been enjoying my freedoms in Christ and kind of leaving it at that. So as you take that bread and then we take this cup and you're holding on to those two things, Lord, help me to repent. Help me to have eyes that see. Open my eyes when I go out on Monday morning to look at the people that I meet, to look at the people that I talk to, pay attention to them. I want to be like Paul, who can say, I've become all things to all people, so that by all means, I might win some. And then we'll think of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3. Those who are wise 
shine like the stars. And those who turn many to righteousness. I'm going to shine with them. What a glorious thought that is, isn't it? 